Hi, and welcome to the Same Therapy Podcast from telebehavioralhealth.us. In this first episode, we give you the story of why Susie Morosevich, our CEO, started the telebehavioralhealth.us in the first place. We also learn why one of our first clinicians, Rachel Boots, PhD, joined the team, and we talk about why they both became therapists, and also we have an important discussion on authenticity and its place and purpose in therapy. Also, you're going to find out what uh, what's the best way to find a therapist in the first place. So we'd love to get your feedback. Please write a review or send over an email to Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, at telebehavioralhealth.us. Enjoy our episode. So excited to have you both here. Uh, you know, I'm Corey. I'm the host here today. I'm, uh, I'm with uh, Telebehavioral Health as uh, the CMO, and I'm so excited to be joined by Susie and Rachel. Um, Susie, how about a little intro from you? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm Susie Morozovich, and I am the founder and owner of Telebehavioral Health US. Great. You're not just the owner. Like, you have a big girl title, too, right? That's kind of important here. I am the CEO. Yeah. All right. Rachel, a little intro. Hi. Hi. I am a therapist with Telebehavioral Health US, and um, I have a degree in social work and also a degree in psychology. A couple of them, actually. So. A couple of them, you just got a pocket full of degrees there. <laughs> Rachel is actually a doctor. She is one of the most educated people that we have on the team. Besides, you know, the actual doctor that has a medical degree and not a PhD. One of. <laughs> <laughs> I call um, you Dr. Boots. <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Boots. Um, well, I'm, I'm able to call you Dr. Boots throughout the rest of the program. This is great. Um, so Susie, yeah, like this is our first episode and it's uh, a lot of people listen to this to try to get a real good handle of like, uh, well, you know, who are these people? Why are these people? So like uh, we were talking before the show, like uh, what an origination story is. What's your origination story, Susie? Where do you come from? Okay. So I am from Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I have been a licensed social worker since 2004. Um I come from a lot of different worlds. I was in the CMH world for a while, doing in-home therapy. And then I was the clinical supervisor of a runaway and homeless youth program, a basic center program, so a short-term shelter. And that's my preferred population to work with. I love working with rebellious and displaced and what we call throwaway teens or throwaway youth. And then I went on to be an outpatient clinician. And I have taught courses at Grand Valley State University and been an outpatient patient practice since about 2010. Um, I'm also a trainer of motivational interviewing, and I have a framework with the Library of Congress that gets real nerdy when it comes to clinical work. So it's about um, writing measurable and stage-matched objectives. So what that means is when people come into treatment, they come into treatment in five stages of change. It's either pre-contemplation, like I don't have a problem, the rest of the world is the problem or it's contemplation, which is maybe I have a problem and you see the pros and the cons of changing and staying the same, maintaining that status quo. Then there's preparation, action, and maintenance. And what we've learned is that 80% of our clients come in not quite yet ready to change. And clinicians were tasked with the um, with having to write measurable objectives indicating change for people who weren't quite yet ready to change. So I created a framework that helps clinicians to 
do that in under one page. And I use that to, um, when agencies and organizations have a hard time, a few years back, they were all, I think it was Joint Commission was really big into this and everybody was getting dinged for audits. And I also saw clinicians really struggling with it. And so I looked to see what was out there and there really wasn't much. There was a, there are a couple of treatment books that clinicians gravitate towards. And when I read them, I was like, wow, this guy's objectives are really not objectives, they're methods. That's how nerdy I am. Hmm. So I rewrote every single one of his methods as an actual objective. Um, And then I put it on an Excel sheet and I handed it out to my friends. Um, Because for me, it's we're in a field where I don't feel like we are very well prepared when we graduate. And oftentimes we're told, oh, it's okay. You should question your confidence and competence at graduation. But, and that's maybe more of a different, whole different show or different topic. (laughs) So one thing that's always been really important to me is helping clinicians um, make their jobs easier. Just like when we, when I work with parents, you know, and we start looking at behavior modification and things parents can do, I always tell them, I don't want you to do more. I actually want you to do less. And so it's the same when I work with clinicians, because then it's easier for them to do their jobs. At the same time, we have, you know, with clinicians, a lot of us are social workers in the nonprofit sector. And so not having the ability to write those measurable stage matched objectives when there was really nobody out there telling us how to do it, what that would equate to for so many was they wouldn't get their one to 3% raise that would go into their employee evaluation. And then it could be a reason for them not to get that one to 3% raise. And that's like their standard of living raise you know, and they're already underpaid. And those two books that I bought were 50 bucks a piece. And so for me, my passion is really helping helpers to help others. There was, you know, when we were talking about the origination story at the like beginning uh, of the show there, you know, I, I was like, okay, so yeah, this is something that creates somebody. Is there a moment in your life that like turned you into this person and you had a really cool response? What was that? We're born this way. Yeah. I mean, social workers, we... We were not here because it's something that we were like, oh, that looks fun. Like literally going back, I've always been someone who rooted for the underdog. I've always seen the world differently. I'm not neurologically t- typical. And so I oftentimes feel marginalized so I can relate with people that do. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think that being a social worker is necessarily a choice. And even so much that when you declare you're going to be a social worker, the one thing you hear is you're not going to make any money. Mm-hmm. And, and what we all say, which I, I'd like us to change, is it's okay, I'm called to do it, or it's not about the money. You know, I think social workers are a, a different brain type. We're a neurotribe, really. Right. Now, Rachel, what's your origination story? Do you have uh, something similar to Susie? Or? I think she is correct in that we're born that way, but we might not necessarily know it like right off the bat, like it might be kind of a winding road to, to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, like I always wanted to be an author and you know what, I'm not going to rule that out. That could happen someday. You know, that can be part of this journey here as far as the social work thing. Um, but we should write a book together. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, you know, I think if I had like an origin, it would be as I got a little bit older coming to terms with and dealing with like my own diagnoses, which that's something that we can get into in future podcasts is just um, that's part of the whole we're we're human too. You know, we are not 
something to aspire to as a model of perfection. You know, we we have made mistakes too. And we're we're just, you know, we're guides. We're signposts along the way to kind of help you figure these things out. And I think having feeling comfortable with saying, yeah, I I've experienced stuff too. Um, is helpful for people to know that um, mental health affects people across every spectrum. It is the leading source of disease burden in the United States. And so, and that, and that brings us to Susie, like uh, you, you're about to get into being brought into creating telebehavior health. So in 2014, I had just started a new position with an organization that I had previously worked with and loved as an infant mental health um, clinical supervisor, a clinical supervisor in an infant mental health and early childhood program. And three months into my employment there, my then two-year-old got really sick. He was diagnosed with um, atypical tuberculosis. They initially thought it was lymphoma. So we were like, oh, atypical tuberculosis sounds fantastic. What is it? You know? And um, he ended up having the first symptom was a lymph node in his neck that we literally, I feel like if I would have watched this poor child sleep the night before, I would have seen it grow because he woke up and suddenly had a golf ball size knot on his neck. And long story short, uh, the lymph node, the infection had overwhelmed the lymph node and it was dead. And so we had to get it removed and, and where it was on his neck fell in a bundle of nerves that like controls half your, like your, half your face, your neck and your shoulder. And if damaged, he would have had some permanent deformation from that. Um, and so we ended up, they, they were not able to remove the lymph node because of how close it was to that bundle of nerves. So they, they um, curtaged it, which means they, they scooped it out. And there was a hole in his neck that had to heal from the inside out. So I had to immediately leave my job and stay home. And, uh, you know, and this even goes back to when I was 16 and in therapy myself, I remember wondering, like, how come I can't just call this woman on the phone? (laughs) Do I really need to be there in person? And so when I was in 2014, when I was home with Miles, you know, as a social worker, I have, I have two children and coach Little League and I taught at universities and I did professional trainings and it was chaotic. Um, I felt like I could never be home with my kids and I always wanted to have more time with them. So in some way that summer with Miles was absolutely amazing. And I got to do things with him and spend time with him that I didn't get to do. And, you know, even backing up when he was born, he went into daycare when he was three months old and he had constant ear infections. And it, there were days where when you're a clinician, you, you have to have evening availability because um, a lot of your clients can't come in during the day. And so I, there was three days a week where I didn't see them except for picking them up or dropping them off at school and daycare. And I didn't want to return back to that after um, I was ready to go back to work. There weren't really any other options. When I was home, I did end up finding a, lot, uh, a post on Indeed um, with the telehealth company looking for clinicians in Michigan I think it said something like, are you an LMSW in Michigan? Do you want to make 60 or 80 bucks an hour from home or something? I was like, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I thought it was a joke. I, w- I thought there is no way that this is actually a thing. 
Um, and I, I, it was a thing. It was a great company. I ended up working with them for, I think, a year. I did return to work in a semi-private practice um, the following February, so about a year after Miles' diagnosis and everything. And it went back to the same thing. I was literally in the car commuting kids 15 hours a week and I couldn't spend time with them. And it was, you know, at that, that point in time, I had to stop coaching because it, it was too much. And that really kind of broke my heart. I enjoyed, co- I coached my son's baseball team when he was um, in a youth league. And so in 2015, I started paying attention to telehealth laws because I saw that, that they were expanding. And one of the courses that I taught was policy. So I'm also a policy nerd. And I started writing the business plan for this thinking it just makes so much more sense. There's so many people that can't physically make it into the office. And with us being a female dominated field, it would just be so much better to work from home. And then I started to realize, man, if I cut out the middleman, in terms of who's, you know, getting money from my sessions, that actually increases my income quite a bit more. And I don't even have to work as much. So in 2016 in Michigan, they changed uh, telehealth laws to allow psychotherapists uh, to bill their codes online. And it was three months later that I opened the practice. Um, The whole mission behind telebehavioralhealth.us is we absolutely celebrate the fact that telehealth increases access for our clients and the people that we serve. And that's amazing. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it also allows us to address the fact that social workers, it's a predominantly female profession, and we are required to have a higher level of education. Um, And if you look at national averages, we would say on average, make about 20 grand a year less than your typical master's level professional. And we also have higher mortality rates. And the workload is something that we know adds to burnout and employee turnover. And so from my perspective, when we look at two things, I'm also, I have a a minor in economics. I'm kind of an economist too. For a hot minute in college, I thought I was the embodiment of Karl Marx. So you look at the the, the, the mental illness is a leading source of disease burden on one hand. And you look at the people producing that product to help that are overworked and underpaid and required to be highly educated. And it, you can't expect a good product out of that field to address the issue. So when we look at that disease burden, from my perspective, it immediately goes right back to worker conditions for social workers. So what telehealth allows us to do is take the savings and not having as much of an overhead cost. So, because we don't have buildings and space. And on that note, we're extraordinarily green. Um, No paper, really, and no office space. No one commutes to work. And so I I really like that piece of it too. Um, But it helps us take all that savings and put it back into the workers' pockets. So when I was working at a large, you know, the largest behavioral health corporation in the Midwest as an outpatient clinician, fully licensed with a master's degree, I was making nineteen twenty-eight an hour. And now working, um, working with us, we split every clinician's claims on a 70-30 split. So a clinician working with us doing 25 to 30 hours a week can make about 90 grand a year from home. And from my perspective, allowing clinicians to have the flexibility to also wear the many role hats that they wear 
as, as a social worker um, and paying them a, a living wage, that's how we fix the leading source of disease burden. And we can use telehealth to do that. Right. Um, so, uh, and then it, this has been how long that you've been uh, putting this company together? So I have been, I started the practice in 2016 mm-hmm. at, again, a very low point in my life. Um, but I started it with no investment at the time. The one thing that, that I found was that there was just a lot of resistance to telehealth, um, which didn't make sense to me. And at the same time, we had the American Telemed Association, the APA, the American Medical Association, SAMHSA, National Institute for Mental Health, and WHO it was a, um, a call to action for people to explore what the AT and the APA had created, which was a direct-to-consumer model using telehealth. So I took a model that had been out there for about five or six years, and I, I applied it. Now, this is where also being a consumer and being neurologically atypical comes in handy. I am one of those people that doesn't recognize risk real, real well, you know? <laughs> wow. And so I think that that's, that actually helped me to do this because – I was the first clinician to take the model across state lines. I got licensed in California and um, the path to reimbursement because it was so new was disastrous. So when I first started working with insurance companies in every capacity from credentialing to billing, they would initially deny me because they would look at my claims and see that my primary practice and secondary practice were in two different states. And they'd make the assumption this must be an error and I would get a letter back saying deal with your local Blue Cross or deal with someone in your area. So it went from just a complete lack of awareness to now it seems like insurance companies, especially now with, with COVID, have actually like policies and will identify that you're a telehealth provider and payment isn't as much of an issue. Um, but uh, one thing that keeps most clinicians from starting their practice is credentialing and reimbursement and not having any investment or help with that. It was four years of really kind of plugging away and doing this on my own. Um, I didn't have a website developer. I had to develop the website, create all the sure. forms. And so for four years, I slowly, I, I compare it to like building a sandcastle, one grain of sand at a time and plucked along and, and did that. We'll see in a small load of clients so I could work with the administrative nightmare that was creating a telehealth, the telebehavioral health company and getting reimbursed. So um, in January of this year, we had just gotten to a point where we could start adding people and our, we, were, we found a way to reduce our credentialing costs by like a thousand percent, if that's even a number, um, from $850 per clinician to 35. And so right before the coronavirus hit, we were about to scale. And then the virus hit and we, Corey, you, Steve, and I took a, set, a, a step back and said, we have a commitment and a, a civic duty. We have a civic responsibility to make a commitment to the community or the state to add clinicians to help stabilize the workforce and bring access to people. So that was when we were like, let's just go for it. And we made the commitment to hire 50 clinicians in the next few months. And so in over the course of two months, we have gone from a practice of one to I think we're at about twenty right now, and we. Um, it only took us a couple of weeks to find uh, fifty plus folks uh, that. Are, we you know, that announced that we were yeah. going to be hiring, and within two weeks, I think we had forty or fifty resumes. And we had, and then one of those is uh, Rachel Health. I'd love to hear Rachel like. Uh, what have you been doing before telebehavioral health? You know, you have a pocket full of degrees. We know that. I have worked in a lot of different fields, um, primarily substance abuse, um, but I 
don't care to work in that any longer. Um, right now I'm working with severely and persistently mentally ill, I'm doing case management and therapy in a, you know, brick and mortar, um, community mental health practice, which I do enjoy very much. Um, but I also have a little boy and he is almost three years old. And, um, I think that everything to do with COVID has put a lot of things into perspective that I was already mulling over in my head about quality of life and only having, you know, one time to do it. And why, why do we work so hard and do all of these things outside of the home, you know, in our best years, only to hope that someday we'll be able to retire and do what? you know, what then? So. Rachel, um, can, I, can I interrupt really quick? Cause I've, I've over um, 15 years of practice, I have met with a handful of women, women who at 50 or 60 are sitting across from me on the couch in tears because they didn't get to do what they wanted to do in life because they made the commitment to their family or to work and one or the other. And That was for me, that was hugely profound. And I, that was one of the things that, that kind of made me come to the same realization that you did, which is when do I get to live this life that I have in this capitalist society? Yeah, there's a, like right now with, uh, with COVID, the, the world is starting to ask those questions, you know, like, oh man, you know, like what, what is this for? you know, and uh, especially like with the, with the, the change of workplace. So Rachel, it's very interesting. You said that, yeah, you've, you've, uh, you've been spending a lot of time in the brick and mortar and I, and I'm, I'm imagining that working with them now you're doing everything telehealth, right? You know, because Susie being basically one of a kind, all places were super resistant to the idea of, um, providing telehealth, um, because, you know, I'd have clients ask all the time, can I do a telephone session? It's like, well, no, I mean, I can talk to you, but this isn't going to be like a session session, you know, because it's not available. <laughs> we need you to so, get on the bus and, and I have spend to three save, hours. <laughs> yeah. I need to save that hour for somebody that's on the schedule going to come into the office kind of thing. It comes down to reimbursement. And, and there's, there's two words that I hear a lot in the field being thrown around. And initially with telehealth, I heard them a lot. Is it legal? Is it ethical? And I've learned after 15 years of being a social worker by trade, a profession that when I hear legal and ethical, what they really mean is, is it reimbursable? And so yep. that phone session, you can do the same thing. And actually, we, you know, people would say, oh, well, you can't do, you can't do telehealth with the most, you know, persistent and severe and uh, people who are suicidal. We've actually been doing telehealth with suicidal people since the seventies with the tele with the suicide hotline. Nonverbal communication is important if that's how your brain processes it. I have yeah. auditory processing stuff. And for me, tone of voice and inflection and not having the distraction of seeing the world around me actually helps me tune in more. I love phone sessions because I can hear what they're going through. Yeah. Like Rachel, I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on like, what is, what has been your experience having been, you know, basically forbidden to, to practice like this and now 
you absolutely have to have been. Right. And I think that's very interesting, this idea of like, no, no, it can't be done. And now it's being done by necessity and, oh, turns out it's just fine. And <laughs> We've known only, all along. <laughs> yeah. And not only that, but I guarantee that that will lead to more changes because they're realizing hey, it's actually more profitable this way because it significantly reduces the no-show rate. I am way more productive working from home than I ever was in the office because <laughs> very rarely do people not answer my call. Um, and out of all of my clients, only a handful have said, you know, I just... I can't get as much out of the non face-to-face. And, you know, like Susie was saying, it's, I get that. It is different for everybody. And some people really need to have like that kind of interaction to gain anything from it. Um, But most people, they think it's great because of the ease and the convenience and, you know, all of the things that have been uh, previously mentioned. And I, I hope it brings kind of a turnaround in how things are done and what's considered illegal and ethical. Well, yeah, right. Susie, we have this opportunity to answer the call. I want to kind of speak to a a beyond the legal and ethical slash reimbursable reimbursable conversation is I I think that what made it easier and not easier, but more realistic or less risky for me to do as opposed to other larger companies, I was an operation of one. I had nothing when I started the company. I didn't even have a place to live at the time. And so I had nothing to lose, you know, but from a bigger company perspective, when I started this, there was nobody that could say to me, yes, you can do this um, and you'll get paid for your sessions. And that was the scariest part to me. I didn't know until I received my first reimbursement from Blue Cross Blue Shield Michigan if I was actually going to be able to be reimbursable because nobody was there to confirm it for me. And I don't know if it's a me thing or what, but it's always easier to have someone say, yes, you can do that because it will be okay. And there wasn't anyone that could do that. Even though I was reading the laws for the states I was in and I was reading the policies from the payers and most states have uh, parity laws, which means that we have to get reimbursed the same for an in-person session or a brick and mortar session. And so I just simply had less to lose. And so that was where I was able to really push the boundaries of what's being done um, with, without worried that it was going to affect the lives of others. And that is also something that prevented me from adding other clinicians uh, sooner is I didn't want to put other people in the same situation that I was in where like, I didn't get paid from an insurance company in California for a year you know, because of the misunderstandings with telehealth. And I still have issues with some payers that um, result in not getting paid. And and it was, there were times when I didn't know if I'd be able to have food in the fridge for the kids. Like I remember one time I was like, I'm screwed. I have nothing and I have no food. And I went to Speedway. (laughs) I'm going to cry. And the the gas station clerk was like, do you know you have 300,000 speedy points? And I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, it means you have $300 in gift cards that you can get through Speedway. And I literally bought groceries and pizza for the whole weekend from Speedway. (laughs) You know, there was another time too. There was two times that got really low and I was really scared. And one of them, the other thing that came through was a gift card from Comcast. When I opened my internet account with them six months before, that day that I had no money, that card came in the mail. And 
that's a whole different thing, but it just felt like the universe was really, had my back. (laughs) Well, that's a really good point right there. Like, uh, and and I want to get back to Rachel, like you, like you found us, you know, speak about the universe, you know, like, uh, like how did you, how did you find us and and why? How did you find us? I'm always casually looking, right? Like <laughs> there's there's got to be something out there, you know, better than what I'm doing, not living up to my full potential. It feels like a lot of the time. And I don't know how because I don't I mean, I believe LinkedIn like sent an auto-generated email to me that was just like telebehavioral health US is looking for a clinician. I don't know, and something just What said, were your thoughts when it. you saw it? Um, my thoughts were, eh, does it work? Real? Yeah. That, that, yeah. that, that telehealth that's always, stuff that that's always too good to be true. <laughs> that was my same thought when I saw it. This can't be real. <laughs> yeah. Like it's not going to happen, but what the, Hey, we'll, we'll put our, our self in there and, and see what happens and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm one of your, one of your first people. You were. And, and so. <laughs> I'm so glad that you took that chance because you're one of my favorite people too. <laughs> Not from the team, but just in, in amongst all of the people. And I'm so glad that you're on board. You. Yeah. When you guys yeah. first met, um, you know, like, so the, the onboarding and uh, interview process is it, it's not very, it's not, it's not fast. It's not, and it's not slow. Right. Um, right. Like how was that uh, first meeting between the two of you? It was, oh my gosh, it was so awesome. <laughs> I went away from that meeting like so geeked and like everybody like my husband and my mom and stuff they were kind of like yeah like you know what I mean like I was just like so pumped up so they probably thought that I was like buying into some pyramid scheme or something you know because it was like that exciting and that motivating and they're just like (laughs) okay whatever's going on you're drinking the kool-aid like I think my family up until um the pandemic felt the same thing. They were like, what are, why are you, what, you know, they just, they, I think they thought I was creating a pyramid scheme. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, what did I say in particular that, that struck you, um, ma- that made you walk away feeling that way? So it wasn't anything in specific. It was more like, again, that, that authenticity, that feeling of like this woman, the passion, Mm. so it was like she really knows what she's talking about and she really believes what she's talking about and she's like like on a human level and mm-hmm. not just like on a this is my business yeah. kind of level but like how how can you not buy into something and believe in something that that the person themselves believes so strongly in like it's like you're too passionate to fail <laughs> I, I think that um for me, social workers are such an amazing neurotribe or breed of people. And looking around at the hundreds of, you know, thousands of amazing people I've known in the field throughout my time, I've seen what they're capable of when their needs aren't being met. You know, when they're working too many hours for not enough money and they have productivity standards and mm-hmm. professional development standards that really are more about checking boxes and making them feel like machines that produce therapy cogs. And having been in private practices where I wanted to take a day off, I want to work four days a week so I could do my other jobs and be yeah. home too on the weekends or in, in, in some evenings. And but knowing deep down inside that my office sits open one day a week. 
which means that machine is not producing cogs. And there's this feeling, this acute awareness of if someone's going to get cut from the practice, it's going to be me if a psychiatrist comes in. So I, I've seen what social workers can do way, when they're they're living in those and working in those conditions. And I want to see what they can do when, when they have their basic needs met. You know, I say it a lot, but Maslow teaches us about our hierarchy of needs. And when you're not getting your basic needs met, you can't self-actualize. And I think that's also right. why social workers have been more resistant to telehealth over the, from what I've seen in the past four years is because when you're so busy in the rat race and trying to stay afloat, you can't look up. This time at home, I think, has given people the chance to stop and look up, you know, as, as well. And so I'm really excited to see what our team can do as we grow and take care of each other's needs together. I'm really excited to see what can happen. I think you you landed on something really powerful there, Susie. Like we've we've now had enough time through this where we've been able to yeah take that moment and look up, either out of like sheer boredom. Mm-hmm. We got to the end of Netflix <laughs> and we're like, okay, what? Um, so Rachel, have you how have things changed in the last few weeks since uh, you and I first spoke? I think I I haven't started seeing people yet. So there's like that little bit of like excited nervousness about oh my gosh, like what what's it going to be like. What's it going to be like to be released from constraints of expectations that are pointless and mm-hmm. basically, like Susie said, to tick boxes, you know, how freeing that is. But at the same time, like, I just have this fear that it's going to be so easy and good that I'll feel like I'm like missing or not doing something correctly, you know, like right. this, something's wrong here. Like, what am I forgetting to do? What am I missing? What? What this is, is supposed to be painful. I'm, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, when, when we look at the definition, so what is, what is telehealth? It, telehealth is defined as the same procedure that you would receive in a brick and mortar setting delivered through a video communications platform. So Rachel, you, you've actually been doing what you're, what you're going to be doing with us for a long time. The only thing that's different is you're just not in the room next to them. So you don't reach for a handout from your filing drawer. You, you reach for one on your, on your computer. Um, there are some adjustments like uh, knowing when to speak up. I'm, I'm someone that blurts and interrupts and talks too much anyway. So knowing that I interrupted someone probably doesn't face me as much as, as it might others. And that can happen a lot more on, on telehealth. And there certainly can be some communication or some technology glitches. But at the end of the day, the work that really counts is what you're already doing and what you've already been doing. And it's probably like an opportunity to get more of that work done. You get to do it from home too. And (laughs) (laughs) you get to drop whatever you want and go roller skating during the middle of the day if you want to, Right. you know, and you can do it when your kids are sleeping. You know, when we we have an, uh, an ad that is therapy during nap time and that's true for clients, but it's also for clinicians because I would see my clients when, when I, when Miles was sick, I would see my clients when he was taking his nap. And I've never once had a client get angry or upset because of an interruption from a kid or from something going on in my home. Yeah. It happens. Everybody, everybody has a, a real life. I think more so they like, they, they, they like knowing that I do have a real life. Right. Yeah, like yeah. maybe speak more about that. Like uh, Rachel, when we spoke, there was something uh, about that topic exactly. Sure, but the idea of you know authenticity and not not being afraid to 
to be who you are and oh my gosh like I could go spiraling in so many different directions do it spiral and and, and Susie had talked about this idea that you know we say okay we're we're willing to go into this work and not make a lot of money even though other professionals do so this is actually very rooted in a conception that we have been fighting against since we became basically a profession in 1880s Chicago, mm-hmm. you know, with Whole House. Yeah. So we have never received legitimacy as a profession until, you know, maybe even the last couple decades. And even then, people don't think of it as a profession. But there was like this huge fight to be considered professionals like what we do is a real job we're not just helpers we're trained we mm-hmm. have skills we're not just talking to you or at you or or whatever it may be and um, and we we've included evidence-based practice and we measure outcomes now so we know that it's 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 a, a thing you know it's a thing mm-hmm. and so i think part of that too is we've in some degree, maybe we and other mental health practitioners have taken the idea too far of we have to prove our legitimacy by being perfect, being, you know, you come into my office and I'm wearing a tweed jacket and yes. have a, a beautiful setup and perfect decorations. And it's so neat and tidy. And Oh my gosh, the things that you tell me, I just can't even conceive of those being real life, you <laughs> yeah. know? And and like you see therapists portrayed kind of that way on TV and mm-hmm. and in reality these people and they're sitting and they're perfectly, you know, in their designer clothes and mm-hmm. never speak incorrectly. And you know, just wanting to portray this image that isn't necessarily real. You know, we are we are human. We are real life. I would say I'm like 40% derelict dirtbag. It was a hard environment for me. I felt like just being myself wasn't acceptable. Yeah, it's, it's, nobody is, is that perfect. And what a hard thing to aspire to be. Right, right. And what a waste right. of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so like I feel like I always try to – I've always tried to take the route of being me and acknowledging things and not trying to, I, I hate that, that school of thought that a lot of them tell you, you know, being anti self-disclosing yeah, and just remaining above the fray and not admitting to anything and deflecting about personal questions about yourself. Like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you where I live. But I am going to admit to you if I have smoked weed or something. Yeah. First time I I shared with a client that I had a history of self-injury and I was so scared that 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 could come back and and why, you know, and, and even I mean, to me, this is like this goes back to working in organizations and it's like, can I give my client my cell phone number for my work cell phone name? It's like, no, and it's like, why not? Because they'll call you. Well, you know, and they'll call you all the time. And what happens is what I found is that when you give, when you, first of all, when you're like, no, I can't give you access to me. What you say is I'm better than you. And I can't trust you with my, my phone number. Yeah. That is how, that is how bad off you are. And the other piece then is, um, if that client does end up calling me and that has happened more times that, than I can manage, um, what I can do is sit down and have a conversation with them 
And I can say, listen, like we need to get more support in your life because I can't be the only one. And that actually opens up that dialogue into helping them get more care. And I wouldn't have gotten that information if I didn't know. They might just come in the office the next week and say, like, last week was really bad. You know, but I, um, so. And now I'm fine and I have nothing to talk about. I work through it. Between calling and, and business, like we'll, we'll take that phone call. Well, that phone call could be an hour, hour and a half of your time with your family and you can't get paid for it previously, you know? Right. And so and if you're in a private setting, but now with telehealth, you can say, you know what? After I put the kids down tonight, why don't we hop online and have a session? And now I can, I can get paid for the work that I'm doing and be present for someone who's in need. Yep. Things like that. It's, it's, I think self-disclosure you know, we talk about boundaries and I've always been, I've always been bad at boundaries. It's never been a, a secret and I'm going to try and hide it now. Same. Um, yeah. yeah <laughs> boundaries, what? Um, <laughs> going back to that recognizing risk. But um, I think what the important thing to think about self, I have a lot of clients. I, I'll ask them when they come in, what is one thing your last therapist did that you don't, you would prefer I not do? And what I always hear is they talk too much about themselves. And so I I try to be really mindful in terms of if I self-disclose, it's going to be oftentimes I use it to one, assess what the other person is experiencing. So I'll use my experience with depression or anxiety or being on um, on the spectrum or being ADHD or the myriad diagnoses that I've been handed in my life. And um, I mean, the DSM five is like a trip down memory lane for me. You know? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but like, but the, that it's, it's not because I'm seeking their help. It's to say, did it feel like this? And they're able to say yes, or not so much more like that. And that's where I find it really helpful is I can make an assumption using some uh, a past experience and the client can confirm or change their experience. And I just get more clinical information. So for me, my thought is self-disclose away, whatever you want to tell clients, share it with them as long as it's not damaging them. And, you know, with substance abuse and I always, like you were saying, history of smoking pot and um, still smoke pot. Um, Pot's legal in my state, so I can. Uh, But I was always nervous to tell people that because um, I was told that it would encourage kids to do drugs. But what I can share with them if I do self-disclose is the concept of neuroplasticity. And we can look at when they started and how repeated use in adolescence hardwires neural reward pathways that they won't be able to get all the way to the top of that feeling of joy in adulthood if that reward pathway hardwires around substance use. And then I can also talk about my own history with substances and the time in my life when I had spent so much of my youth and adolescence and young adulthood using substances to feel good that the day came when I couldn't use them to feel good. And it was really hard to feel even normal at that point in time. And, you know, it kind of left me at like a nothing feels good at all. And that's a hard spot to be. And so we can talk about not wanting them to go through that and, you know, protect their brain. I've worked with youth too, who don't want to start substances obviously yet, but want to be more social. And so we've come up with plans like if you're at a party, can you, and you feel like if you don't drink, the people are going to ostracize you or feel like you're a narc or whatever. Can you walk around with a drink and not drink it? 
And the answer was, yeah, I could totally do that. I've got, the, I've got no desire to drink. My father's an alcoholic, but I just want to fit in. And I was like, well, dump it in a house. No, don't dump it in a house plant because it'll kill a plant. But like, <laughs> just walk around with it or walk around with a, a, a squirt bottle and, and, you know, say that there's something in it. No one has to know what you're actually drinking. So it right. opens up, you know, finding other creative avenues. Yeah, so uh, like uh, I, I love the, the this this point of uh, being authentic and that that we're allowed and free to be that way, uh, especially in our practices. Now, now, Rachel, when when you're looking at building your practice with us, um, who who are the populations that you're that you want to want to find you? And that's part of what we're doing this for is uh, so we can help people find you. Like we just got done talking about a lot of substance abuse and you said earlier, you don't want to. Right. <laughs> and I don't want to do with that just because I've done it for so long that I have a lot of sort of count, like transference issues with it. Like I'm just, you know, like Susie was talking about you, you get burnout on certain things, especially if you like, for me, I was pigeonholed kind of into working in substance abuse because that was what was available at the time, not necessarily where my passion was. So it was never something I chose. So, you know, having the ability to choose now, um, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it anymore. Right. And that's nothing against the population. It's just, it was a long, hard road of doing something that was not necessarily my passion. So I really enjoy working with people that, you know, that I identify with. <laughs> so I want to work with people on stress reduction and self-esteem enhancement and various types of depression. I see you working with a lot of young women too. I think you would be a great yes. therapist for young women. Yes. I, I loved working Teenage with young girls. women. Mm -hmm. teenagers and young women like just kind of um in their formative years like grasping because that's such like early 20s are just so hard mm -hmm. and sometimes I feel like if I had been able to sort of have somebody to I guess you could say hold my hand and mm -hmm. give me like a real uh professional perspective on how things work and what to do and how to make good choices that maybe things would have been um a little easier mm -hmm. you know i'm not going to pretend that i've had just this horrible tough life but you know i there have been times that i made things unnecessarily hard on myself when there was <laughs> i was just going to say that i was going to say i am i am like my biggest oppressor like any hard thing i've gone <laughs> yeah, through i that, i like, made that it's happen a family joke like if there's a hard way to do something like I will I will do it like I had to smash my own foot every single time to like figure yeah. out like this is a bad idea you know and now you come to them with like oh I've got this uh, telebehavioral health thing and I met this girl Susie and uh, you know it's gonna be so easy and great right. and like are you kidding us yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah try to explain all of that to them and be like yeah. I swear like I couldn't even explain to them I'm like seriously like if this woman is a con this is like the most long played out like con in the world there's no way to like there it's just not possible can you ever tell them like hey I have, i'm the one with the phd like <laughs> can you just say that no because like you know i'm i'm book smart but i'm not <laughs> people and real life smart well, you, you, you guys brought up a really interesting a good point here and so i want 
like we're, we just talked about the people that you don't want to see and the people that you really do want to see. And, and Susie helped say like, yeah, I mean, I see even more people that would be a great fit. Can we, yeah. can we talk just a little bit about like what, what that, what that means, like finding the right fit with the therapist? So one of the reasons that we are doing, you know, some video series on the website is we want, uh, clients to, to get a sense of who we are before they come into treatment. We, we have our, our bios that we put up there. Um, and finding a therapist, I would say, I would define a good fit as someone that you feel safe and comfortable with, but also a little bit challenged. You know, we, if I tell, if you have seen your therapist and I, I have some clients that I will see long-term, but from my perspective, most people shouldn't be in therapy for years and years and years and years. Right. If you've been right. in therapy for years and nothing's changed or you don't even know what you're supposed to be doing there. I have a lot of clients that will come to me and say, I did cognitive behavioral therapy with so-and-so. And so I'll ask them, great, what are your negative core beliefs? What common cognitive distortions do you rely on? They'll go, because we've used CBT as kind of a catch-all term. Yeah. And it's not. It's an evidence-based practice with specific interventions in it. So I would say a good therapist fit would be somebody who pushes you where you walk away from that session feeling like you've gained some insight or awareness um, and that you also feel safe and that you can, you can connect with. What about you, Rachel? So, you know, and going off of that same tangent is that um, I think research is showing again and again that actually that relationship, the therapist-patient relationship is the strongest predictor of you getting something successfully out of therapy. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to feel, for lack of a better term, like it has to be like good vibes, right? Like you have to feel like connected and almost like the way you would feel towards a friend, except for it, that's not what it is, but you, you want to identify with me in some kind of way that makes you feel safe and comfortable. And you want to talk about things. And actually, you know, if, if we go off on tangent, as always, always um, going a, a little bit, an offshoot of some of the research I did on my dissertation um, had to do with like patient provider concordance so, and research really is showing that if you, the more similarities you have, whether like a health, usually healthcare provider, I think is a lot of the research. Um, also the better health outcomes you're going to have for that. So if all things were available to you, you would ideally be hooked up with somebody who is, you know, as similar to you as possible, you know, gender, age range, ethnicity, all of that. And the closer those things um, line up, the likelihood of a better outcome, because you are going to be understanding each other in a different way than, you know, for instance, it's very difficult for women to see male therapists a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. On a very basic level, we could say that. Um, Our brains are different. Like we've got to start acknowledging that men and women's brains are wired differently. There's not just physical characteristics where we hold our body fat and our muscle, you know, that are different. Neurobiologically, we are wired differently. Yeah. So um, I, you brought something up there, uh, Rachel, the good vibes part. And so I want to leave this on the good vibes. What are you most excited about just in this next 
like maybe a couple of weeks for telebehavioral health? Um, I, so for me, I am excited that we have our first therapists now that have onboarded. We have, we're getting the word out there and we have clients coming in now daily. I am excited that we have an opportunity to change the behavioral health care delivery system in a way that actually finally addresses that disease burden. Um, I'm excited that it's summer and I get to skate outside more frequently. <laughs> and it, I mean, there's so many things to be excited about in terms of what's going on with telebehavioral health US. At the same time, it's also difficult to feel a ton of excitement, even though for four years I have felt like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain of this business, you know, running Oz, just mm -hmm. one person. Um, I, and and the, the fact that for four years I have been sending intentions out to the universe to like get help so I can bring people on board and get more help to to others and get clinicians, you know, in a, in a position where they don't have to worry about their basic needs being met anymore and checking all those administrative boxes. So on one hand, I am over the moon in terms of what's going on with the business. On the other hand, we are entering what's about to be a behavioral healthcare crisis. And so it's this like weird parallel of feeling horrified and afraid for what's going to happen in terms of mental health, because the projections prior to COVID were so bleak. Um, you know, we suicide over the past couple of years has gone from the leading cause of death to 14 to 24 year olds to 10 to 35 year olds. There's kind of that on top of the excitement, you know, sure. I got everything I wanted suddenly. And now it's yeah. like, oh crap. <laughs> You know? well, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. How are you doing with that uh, that imposter syndrome? You know, like uh, we had that first. Like, oh, it is on fire! I am I am full board imposter. <laughs> I don't belong here. I am not. Every negative core belief, you know, is just going. But it, the truth is, that's just Kevin. Kevin is the person in my head that is the the voice that tells me, reminds me that I don't belong or I shouldn't be here. And so I, I try. I just don't argue with him as much. I just put him in the corner and say, Kevin, no one fucking invited you to this party. Definitely gotten a little bit louder over the past couple of weeks because. Um, it is nerve wracking having that spotlight on you and living big is something that I've always been very afraid to do, but calling's a calling. Well, I've, uh, I remember one specifically one of my favorite memories in these last few, uh, few months is we had our first big team meeting, you know, with uh, all the new clinicians and, and you just were looking at your computer screen with like all the different faces and all the boxes. Oh my God. And <laughs> I've been so alone the last four years without a team and I'm such a team oriented person while I'm like a, um, Hermit, having a good clinical team has always been a foundation of like strength for me. And so to be able to look at my computer finally and see all these amazing clinicians, like was something I couldn't even imagine. You know, it just, I don't have words for it. I actually don't have words this time. Like that's a fucking thing in itself. <laughs> all right, Rachel, how about you? I think like, and I guess maybe just to get a little woo woo on everybody, uh, I feel like in the last few years, I've just been in a massive like time of metamorphosis and personal journey and just kind of like ever growing, ever changing, you know, working so hard towards like self-actualization. And I, I feel for whatever reason that um, Telebehavioral Health US and like the team, the people that I've been connected with, Corey and some of the resources that he's set me up with and got me thinking about and just have really like kind of set me on fire like yeah I'm I am actually 
actively working towards like who I want to to be and like just get that that sense of peace of like okay I can stop chasing so Rachel I I, I, um on a side note I want to say something to you personally is that I will not be the boss I will be the partner who does not stand in front of you and says, mm, maybe not. Mm-hmm. I will be the person next to you egging you on and going, yep, go for it. Do it. Yep. Uh huh. Yeah. I don't want to stand in your way. I want you to, I want to see what happens with your self actualization because you are a force to be reckoned with. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Rachel and Susie. Thank you so much for, for making time to, to show thank up and you. be here. Thank you um, for setting this up. Uh, yeah, and uh, we look forward to uh, you know talking with uh, with with everyone, all the listeners. We're doing this uh, every other Tuesday uh, for for the beginning, and just to stay tuned, you'll be able to find us uh, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Um, so with that, maybe uh, a final thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's been so much fun. Talk to you all later. <laughs>